Let's open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 30. We're studying through that book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in chapter 30, and we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. So hang on. Buckle, yeah, buckle up. I, <laughs> I, I, every time I think about seatbelts, I think about my dad, because he told me when seatbelts, some of you are young, obviously. I remember when cars did not have seatbelts and when you had to add seatbelts to cars. My dad, who was a mechanic, he knew cars. He taught me and he told me, and I believed him, this was his mantra, seatbelts kill more people than they save. And I said, well, how is that possible, Dad? And he goes, well, you go into a ravine and you can't get out of your car because your seatbelt is stuck and next thing you know, you're on fire. This is why I almost opted out of young life, you know. But anyway, let's start over. We're in the book of Isaiah, uh, and it's in chapter 30 that we put in. And the topic we find there, we wait on the Lord. He says he waits for us as well. The title of our message, The Wait Awakening. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, today we are your uh, temple uh, individually and corporately. So those of us who are Christians, Lord, you say that you indwell us, you live in us, where our body is your temple. And when we come together as believers, Lord, we're a living temple, your church. And so, uh, Lord, as, as we've done that, we pray that your spirit would minister to us, that he would open your word to our hearts the way that only he can. As our teacher and as our comforter, Lord, I know I need comfort this morning. I, I think everyone in here needs comforting in some way. And it's a good thing that we're here, Lord, because you are the great comforter. Uh, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Speaking of Vladimir Putin, he is notorious for keeping world leaders waiting. Angela Merkel once was kept waiting four hours and 15 minutes for a meeting with him. To quote Daniel LaRusso, what goes around comes around. In late 2022, a video of Putin being uh, kept waiting by Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan went viral. It was only 50 seconds, but it seemed like five hours due to Putin's nervous fidgeting. The nation of Israel kept the Lord waiting. In verse 18, we read, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Throughout their history, Israel has caused the Lord to wait. After Abraham was called by God, he went as instructed to Bethel. There was a famine. Abraham decided on his own to go down to Egypt. It caused a five-year delay in his walk with the Lord. On the border of the promised land, the giant-fearing Israelites refused to enter, resulted in a 40-year wait. In the first century, the leaders of the nation rejected Jesus as their Messiah the kingdom of God that he offered on earth has been delayed over 2,000 years. Why does God wait? It says here, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God waits and we wait for him. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when God waits for you, he exalts his grace. And number two, when you wait for God, you example his grace. Let's take a look at God waiting for us in verses 1 through 18. Now, God is always right on time. He's never late. He's never early. We would, you know, have trouble with that sometimes. God always seems late to you, doesn't he? 
But he's never late, he's never early, he's always just on time. How can we make sense of him waiting for us or us for him? Well, the answer to that is yes. And by that I mean, despite all genuine waiting, God is always right on time. A.W. Tozer noted, God's plan will continue on God's schedule. And so, you know, some people would say, well, no, God's got this rigid plan. Nothing can, you know, change it. And we only seem to wait, and he only seems to wait. I, I think God's bigger than that. And he says, no, I'll, I'll wait for you. I won't wait forever. He can't wait forever. I mean, he's, he's got a thing that he's doing here on earth, right? And it's pretty important. But the Lord is willing to wait uh, because he is gracious and merciful. And really to show that he is gracious and merciful. Verse 1, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. They did not seek his counsel. Their plans were not of God's spirit. They were therefore carnal and fleshly and worldly, compounding the sin that they were already committing uh, in having uh, idolatry and uh, following foreign nations and those kinds of things. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah was facing annihilation from the advancing Assyrian army. Rather than seek the Lord in this crisis, they allied with Egypt. It's one thing to study the Bible and get excited about the strange but wonderful ways the Lord chose to deliver his people. It's another thing to see an army of over 185,000 soldiers advancing on your gates and trust that the Lord was going to do something supernatural. We have a tendency to see Goliaths when we should have the sight and insight of David who saw God giving him victory. So if you're, you know, if you're really walking with the Lord and this army is advancing, you say, hey, I'm going to have a party on my roof. Let's you know, come to my rooftop. We're going to serve uh, you know, baklava or whatever it is. And that's Greek, right? And uh, is it, well, yeah, right? Huh? Okay, don't give me a hard time. Uh, it's just the first thing that came to my head, which I don't know why, because I never eat baklava and don't even know what it is, but it's a great name. Um, and so, you know, he said, hey, we're going to watch the Assyrian army pull up, and this guy's going to come and, uh, you know, uh, talk against our king and talk against the Lord, uh, and let's stay up through the night, because in the morning, 185,000 of these guys are going to be dead. Uh, and so that's what was going to happen, and they could have trusted something like that, but instead they said, you know, it's a lot of guys. We need help from Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. And I think I told you before, whenever the Bible says they go back to Egypt, they're going back to the world. It'd be like us going back to worldly resources in order to fight spiritual battles. Corey Ten Boom once said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to the known God. It's woefully easy to substitute human wisdom for God's leading and making our plans. We need to make a conscious effort to be certain we are hearing from the Lord. By that, I mean we should assume that our first approach to things is going to be shaped by worldly wisdom that we grew up with. Give you an example, and again, a disclaimer, because I don't want anybody to go wrong on this, but uh, you, you can change jobs anytime you want. Uh, that's between you and the Lord, you, right? So that employment, nobody says you have to stay at a place of employment forever. But having said that, um, where does God want you? Well, worldly wisdom would always say that you are going to promote and make more money, right? I mean, that's, you know, whether you're in the military or whether you're in uh, civilian life, you need to promote and keep climbing up the proverbial ladder to make more money and get more benefits and be more respected and all that. And there's even penalties in uh, places for people who aren't promoting. 
there's certainly pressure and people think of you as, as being uh, inferior and all. And so a lot of times people just promote. Uh, or they take the better job because it's the better job. Well, it, that's fine as long as you've run it by the Lord and asked, is it your plan, Lord? Do you need me here? Uh, because that, your secular life, there's no such thing as a secular spiritual split when it comes to Christians. It's all your spiritual life. And so God has your best interests in mind. He wants to give you the desires of your heart, no doubt about that. He's molding you and shaping you into the image of his son. Uh, just make sure you run plans by him to make sure they are his plans and not yours. Um, verse 2, who walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall uh, be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes uh, and they were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be, helpful, or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. Now the northern kingdom of Israel had previously made an alliance with Egypt. When the time came for them to honor it, they didn't. They could not be help or benefit. They were a reproach. Counsel, plans, advice from the wonderful counselor were available to Judah. They are always so much more available to us. We have the complete word of God. Every Christian has God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in them. Not a force, not a power, but the person of God, the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter and our teacher. And I say this not to be facetious, but it's a no appointment necessary arrangement. I think I made fun last week of the fact that, you know, you get diagnosed with some disease and they say, hey, you're going to die in three weeks. And then you call for the specialist. So I can see you in six weeks. And if you don't show for that appointment, you're going to get charged for it. But anyway, uh, you know, that kind of, and the Lord said, no, you can go to the Lord right now. You realize that, right? And sometimes we realize it so much that we don't do it. Verse six, the burden against the beasts of the South through a land of trouble and anguish from which came lioness and lion, viper and fiery flying serpent. Sounds like Australia. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys or Riverdale and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Hem Shabbath. And so a caravan was going to take gifts to Egypt to ratify the treaty. Travel was always treacherous in those days. Predators would see the donkeys and camels as prey and, and put their you know, bibs on and get ready to eat at night. Vipers and fiery flying serpents were in the land. And so the people in this caravan were risking their lives. And it was all for nothing because not only were they not trusting God, they were trusting in Pharaoh who was not going to help them anyway. Have you ever gotten off the freeway and realized you were in definitely the wrong place? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you try and find the freeway again, but they've made it hard for you. Uh, don't be where you're not supposed to be. These Jews in this caravan were not supposed to be on their way to Egypt. And we don't want to be any place we're not supposed to be. Rahab Hem Shebeth has a ton of different definitions that scholars give it. But they all have to do with being a big talker who does not follow through when the need arises. Religion, philosophy, psychology, politics, they're all big talkers, every one of them. They can't help that much now. And they are no help in the future to those who have rejected Christ. And so everybody that's seeking help in a religion, 
And by the way, what is religion? It's anything that isn't biblical Christianity. And all of them are ways of working your way to heaven or to God or to nirvana or whatever they call it. And, and by, we can't get there by works because uh, we're born sinners with a sin nature. Somebody has to die in our place, and that would be Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's a false hope. Uh, you know, when I was in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it was a false hope to me as a child because I could go through the motions. And, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I can remember the wickedness of my heart as I was going through all of the sacraments. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a rare case. Uh, but, you know, I would, I would conveniently forget some of my sins just outside of the confessional. Because once I had asked a, a catechism teacher, if I forget some of my sins, are they still forgiven? Oh, absolutely. Some of the better priests would say, is that all you've done? Yeah, uh-huh, sure. Because I'm lying to you, and that's going to be forgiven too, right? <laughs> and then I'd do my L, uh, L Marys, my Hail Marys, and my Our Fathers, and my Acts of Contrition, and I'd be covered until the next Saturday. And, and you know, I'm not making fun of Roman Catholics at all. I was one, but I, I was a wicked, cruel sociopath uh, who was... <laughs> thought he was on his way to heaven. Verse 8, now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, uh, who say to the seers, do not see. To the prophets, don't prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from being before us. They willfully rejected the path God set for them. They wanted the prophets and seers uh, to quit leading them, quit telling us what God wants for us, get God out of the way so we can continue. Fleetwood Max, go your own way, was their song. It's on hieroglyphics in Egypt, but anyway. Or maybe My Way by Frank Sinatra. I, don't you feel sorry for Frank Sinatra? I mean, this is facetious, but can you imagine the Lord saying, Frank, uh, you want to sing your song for me here at the Great White Throne Judgment? I loved you. I sent my son to die for you. Can't help it that the Roman Catholic Church lied to you. But I'm sure people shared with him. And maybe he was a Christian. Anybody know Frank Sinatra was a Christian when he died? Google it if you're not paying any attention right now. So anyway, verse, what, what did he say? Verse 12, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. In other words, it'll be useless. This is the old sand versus rock foundation argument. Whatever you think you are building, a marriage, a career, a family, a church, you need to build on what is solid, the rock, Jesus Christ. Anything else is what? Sinking sand. How do you build? It's actually very simple. Let's take marriage as an example. We can all dial into this. God gives us a foundation for biblical marriage in his word. It is a covenant of companionship between one biological male and one biological female in an exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual union that lasts until the death of one of the spouses. That's the foundation. 
you build on that foundation. So you, if you're, let's say you're a young person here today and uh, you're a Christian, you think about getting married at some point, uh, this foundation says to you, you must marry a Christian, a real Christian, a genuine Christian, it's not somebody who just says, I went to church my whole life or I believe in God, but somebody who's walking with the Lord. And when you don't do that, then you're building on sand. Now, it doesn't mean every Christian marriage is going to survive. It doesn't, the foundation doesn't guarantee the building. Because we as Christians can build with precious materials or we can build with, you know, cheap materials. Uh, you know, when you go to Home Depot, there's the good, better, best, right? And you always want to, I feel bad not getting the best, but, you know, and good really is rot gut is what it should say. It should say bent and weird, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you know, when you put, you, I, I never used to do this, but then I, you know, you put the two by four, the six by, you put it down to see if it's flat and if it's, and you stand back, you go, yeah, it's just what I need, an S curve, you know, and so, and there's some kind of wood that, you know, it's like, I don't know what it is, but, and then there's the good wood that, you, you know, it's like $3 million, but um, that kind of thing. And so, you know, it, it, that depends on how we build. And if we want to build selfishly, your marriage is doomed. Does, you know, but the foundation is sure, and whether it's the church, and you say, well, what's the foundation of the church? What's the foundation of a career? What's the foundation? What does God say? That, and whatever he says, that's the foundation, and I build on that. Verse 15, for thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. The Lord's counsel and advice, return, rest, be quiet, have confidence, that is a great over-the-counter prescription, right? Anybody, that, for whatever you're going through right now or whatever you go through, this may not be the only thing you need, but God is saying to you, return to me. If you're worried and upset and anxious, then you've moved away from God a little bit because he says, cast your care upon me for I care about you. Return to him and you'll find rest. Be quiet, quiet your soul and have confidence in him. And, um, and that's available to you right now without a prescription. Verse 16, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore you, uh, those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left as a pole on the top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. In other words, all that's left of their army is that banner. If a large army is bearing down on you, you think you need more horses to beat it, right? But if but even if Egypt hadn't answered their call for help or had answered it, it wouldn't have been enough. You can't fight what is essentially spiritual and supernatural with what is natural. When David said he'd slay Goliath, King Saul put his armor on David to protect him. It was woefully, ridiculously too large for him. David said, now I'm going to go the way I am. Of course, he brought a sling and five stones uh, because we, you know, in his situation. It wasn't all metaphor. He didn't go out and say, now metaphorically, I'm stronger than you. And you're going to, you know, this was a real fight at the same time. Uh, But I think we all know that David won that battle, won the victory through God's strength. And that's how we win. We use weapons that are spiritual, not carnal. And so it may not be more money you need or a different job. It's certainly not a different wife or husband if you're Christians, those kinds of things. Um, you know, it's to wait on the Lord and see how he's going to come through for you. Verse 18, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you, 
for the Lord is a God of justice. What is he waiting for? His children to return and enter his rest, whether it's five years or 40 years or 2,000 years, he waits. God's long-suffering is the greatest wait in Scripture. We read about it in Peter's epistle. He says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And people say, well, what, you know, what is God waiting for? If all this is true and he's going to right the world, what's he waiting for? He's waiting for people to get saved, giving more and more opportunity, balancing it out as best he can. See, there's, oh man, there's this much suffering over here, but imagine even one person having to go to hell for eternity. At some point, God's going to be through waiting. His long-suffering waits now, but it can't forever. I, for one, am glad he waited until 1979. Some of you are glad he waited until last year. And some of you are going to be happy that he waited this year if he does, because you have an opportunity to know the Lord. Waiting doesn't make God inactive. He's always at work in your life and in the lives of his people. Uh, number two, when you wait for God, you example his grace. I've heard that a shepherd only leads his flock walking ahead of them, that he never drives them. Now, disclaimer, I'm not 100% clear on whether that's true, but it's a famous pulpit illustration. Footprints in the Sand is a poem that describes the time when in our walk with the Lord, instead of two sets of footprint in the sand, his and ours, there's only one because that's when he carried us. Okay, you probably have that plaque in your house. We think in terms of following Jesus, because after all, he said, follow me. And then there were the two on the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he walked with them, talking with them. Jesus leads us. We follow him. He walks with us. He carries us. In our next set of verses, he's going to tell us that he walks behind us as well. And so the Lord is all around us. Uh, verse 18, the end, blessed are those who wait for him, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he's going to answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity, the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. They needed discipline. God put them on bread and water, basically, you know, as a discipline, uh, when their rebellious defiance gave way to crying out to him, he would answer them. Their blindness that we studied last time in chapter 29 would give way to sight. They would be able to see and, of course, hear their teachers again. Who doesn't like a good restoration? Whether furniture or a house or a classic vehicle, you appreciate the workmanship that went into that project. If you're not a believer, you first need regeneration before restoration. You need to be born again. You need to have God's spirit inside of you. You need to believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he is the God-man who came and died for your sins and rose from the dead and is coming again. And so it's not a restoration. Religion tries to restore you, but you're, you're starting with a piece of junk. Uh, there's no possible restoration. Uh, if you are a believer, you're God's workmanship. Unlike furniture and cars, we're not inanimate, and we tend to give God lip and tell him what we want to be. The Lord says, well, I'm going to make you into this. No, you're not. I want to go this other way. This is the girl I want to marry. This is the guy that's for me. This is the job I want. This is the career. 
this is the whatever, and I'm, I'm going to stubbornly wait until I get that. And the Lord says, huh, I'll wait. I got a lot going on. <laughs> you know, it's a, I'll wait. You, you, you want to be that car that's covered in, in the garage? Don't you love that when you drive around, you look, and you think, oh, I wonder if that's a barnyard find, you know? All these projects. I love the car that's covered and then stacked with boxes, you know, and stuff. Somebody once said, man, I, give me that, you know, Packard, and I'm going to restore that thing, you know, and drive around in gangster, uh, you know, clothes, and you get the engine out, and that's about as far as you get. Next thing you know, you're selling it for scrap iron or something, you know, so, uh, you know, you don't want God to work on you. He'll wait. He won't wait forever. He'll still work behind the scenes, but you're the one that's causing the delay. Verse 21, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Bible commentators are split as to whether this is Jesus telling us which way to go or warning us we have turned the wrong way. Whenever there's a discussion like this, I step back and say, why can't it be both? Obviously, the Lord can and does do both. And so there's times I'm walking with the Lord, and I start off to the right, and he says, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to the left, you know, and stuff. And other times, you know, it, it, he handles it differently, but um, it's both. And so we come to this place where uh, the Lord is, is going to tell us from behind. There's a military expression most of you are familiar with it. It's called cover my six, right? You know what that means? Or I've got your six. Well, the, the back of a person is the six o'clock position. And to cover it means that you're going to protect it. God's got your six or God's got your back. That's what this is telling me. And so as I advance in the Christian life, seeking to go along the path he's already shown me or is showing me day by day, he's got my back. Long before the Mandalorian, he tells you this is the way. Walk in it. A little bit more contemporary crowd here, second service. First service said, what does a mandolin have to do with any of this? I love him. If you go God's way, he covers your six. If you go your way, in a sense, your six is exposed to the enemy. And what comes at you? Fiery darts. The fiery darts of the enemy can't hit you when you've got the shield of faith and all this going, but when you're going your own way and the Lord said, no, I wanted you to turn right and now you're down the road a little ways, uh, you're going to be in trouble. You'll also defile the covering of your images of silver, verse 22, and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing and say to them, get away. Judah would destroy the idols of silver and gold she had been worshiping. And, of course, the corresponding behaviors that went along with worshiping them. We can't clean up our lives in order to come to the Lord. He does that for us uh, as our substitute on the cross. But once we've come to know the Lord, and even afterwards, after we've walked for a while, there, there's going to be some things that we probably should get rid of or that at least are not helping us, right? I mean, it can be as simple as that. This may not be sinful for me. I may have liberty in this certain area, but is it helping me? Is it, you know, in any way helping me in my walk with the Lord? Is it helping me to share, to have deeper faith, to get into the word more? You know, if not, you know, I'm going to live an eternity of bliss doing what I want to do in a place bigger than Montana, right? Everybody wants to go someplace where they're, well, okay, do what the Lord wants you to do in this life. 
dedicate your heart and your life to the Lord and do what he wants you to do. It's going to be great in the future. After you've been in a relationship with the Lord for a while, it's common to add things to your life. Uh, it should be just as common to subtract them. Verse 23, then he will give you rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and the fan. The Jews were promised physical blessing for obedience. We are not. We have the promise of God, namely the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus said, wait, and the promise of God will come, and he did, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and we have that same spirit. We have spiritual blessings in heavenly places, meaning that we have everything we require to live godly lives. Are we always godly? No. But when we uh, fall short and confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, and we keep walking forward. Verse 25, there will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the, that day when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. Global warming is a positive thing in the Bible. Seven times bright the sun, right? That's Okay, I guess that's not really what it's saying. Bad exegesis, bad. You immediately recognize these verses as a description of the future. They reveal the end of time of Jacob's trouble, we commonly call the Great Tribulation. They reveal changes to the earth and its atmosphere in the millennial kingdom that follows the tribulation. This sun shining seven times could tie in with the many judgments that are mentioned in the book of the Revelation that involve the sun. Or I was thinking maybe it... Maybe in the future millennial kingdom, the sun really will shine seven times brighter, but in a way that doesn't hurt us, in a way where we don't have to worry about sunscreen. Or, I mean, you'd need one million sunscreen for something like that, right? But uh, uh, so, you know, who knows? But clearly, God is looking to the future, and we should as well. Verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of futility. There shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. As you know, he returns while the battle of Armageddon is raging in the valley of Megiddo. He takes on the armies of the world, easily defeats them by the power of his voice. Verse 29, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. The phrase in the night when a holy feast is kept is a reference to the first Passover at the time of Israel's future national salvation. It will be like a Passover and there will be new songs for them to sing. Verse 30, the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. For though, uh, through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. 
For Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. This is a look at what God is going to do to the king of Assyria, but it goes beyond that and tells us a little bit of something. Uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum comments, Tophet was located in the valley of Hinnom that circles Jerusalem along the west side of the wall. The inhabitants of Jerusalem would burn their garbage there. The valley of Hinnom became known as the place where some of the wicked kings of Judah practiced human sacrifice to the god Molech. In Hebrew, the valley of Hinnom is called Gehenom, from which we get Gehenna. Because it was a place of continual burning, first of garbage and then human beings, Gehenna eventually became a symbol of the lake of fire. And so again, looking forward to the end of history, uh, the Lord mentions that there will be a, a lake of fire that the wicked will be thrown into for eternity. Leonard Ravenhill said, the world outside there is not waiting for a new definition of Christianity. It is waiting for a new demonstration of Christianity. God waits for you. It'd be easy right now to launch into the don't make God wait exhortation. I'm almost, you know, you know, just make everybody feel bad. You made God wait. God, the creator of the universe, he's waiting for you. And, uh, you know, but what you're doing is projecting your own attitude about waiting. God nowhere in this says that he despises waiting or that he hates you for his waiting or that he wants to judge you for his waiting. He just says, all right, you want to go your own way? You, you want to do what you want to do? I, I can let you do that for a while. Not indefinitely, but for a while, go for it. And it's not out of anger or bitterness, it's to teach a lesson. It's to show us his love for, it's to reveal his graciousness. What a gracious father. And you think, well, wait a minute, that's kind of, I wouldn't do that as a father. Uh, God's a gracious father to his children. Not all analogies are one-to-one. God is a better father, but we, we have discipline that we need to meet out on our children as well. Or I'm not suggesting you don't discipline your kids anymore. Woo, wow. All you have to do is go to Walmart and you figure that out. But anyway, uh, so God says, all right, I'll, I'll stay back. And so we don't want to ever project on God our attitudes, our anger, our anything. And so God waits because he loves you. And he knows what's best for you. Now, he'll only wait for a point. I mean, you, you get to a person like Jonah, right? God said, I'll wait. I'll wait three and a half days while you're uh, in a fishy situation, you know. Jonah said, I think I'll go God's way. I'm not going to do it pleasantly, but I'll go that way. And so, so God, it's a combination with God. God, because he knows your life. He knows the lives that you're going to encounter. Some people, God, I've, I've noted over the year, we've been here a long time now, humanly speaking, you know, 30 some odd years, right? Or how many years have we been here? What is 1985 to today? Do the math. I, good, I can't do it either. But anyway, we've, we've been here since 1985, and I've seen people over the years who either walked away from the Lord or quit doing different things, and, and they waited decades, decades to come back to the Lord and, and get their mojo on again, I guess, for, for lack of a better word. Uh, and other people, I've seen God, you know, they, they tried to go a certain way, and God just said, no, 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 this is not going to happen. And he puts up roadblocks and fences and all that kind of stuff. And so the Lord, he, he knows what he's doing. Let him do it. Our part is to seek him, to wait upon him. And as much as possible, 
not to cause him to wait. Because when we do, it is we who lose out, not him. Amen?